Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest was uh, Paul Sweeney MP. Paul is the Labour MP for Glasgow North East, which just so happens to be Matt's constituency. Um, we had a really good chat with Paul, um, even though neither me or Matt have voted for Labour in the last sort of general elections or Scottish Parliament elections, and we're both independent supporters. We get right in about it with Paul and we loved a lot of what he was saying. Um, we spoke about Brexit, the recent sort of affront to democracy that we've been seeing in the past couple of weeks, um, which as I record this, it's been announced has been found to be illegal. Um, we spoke about money in politics and hedge funds basically controlling politicians um, while they're short in the pound. Um, in the face of a no-deal Brexit. We even got Paul to talk about sort of what would Labour's answer to this mess be. We also spoke about a couple of the sort of local issues, Glasgow-specific issues that we've been talking about in the last, with people in the last sort of episodes. Ask the 700 comes up, the Cali um, was a prominent point of discussion and just about sort of local activism in general. Um, Matt even talks about Paul's impressive track record and how visible he's been um, as his um, MP and that he would definitely be voting for him in a general election. Um, so, I mean, we think that this is an appropriate time to put this podcast out because um, of the stuff that's been going on and also the ruling the day in the um, Supreme Court that the... Um, the propagation of parliament has been illegal so i hope you enjoy the episode if there's any feedback as always we're on twitter give us a shout at rebel city pod Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week we've got the privilege of having Paul Sweeney, MP here. How's it going, Paul? Aye, not bad. How are you? Not bad, mate. It's nice not to bad. meet you, man. Uh, it's good to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Sure. It's an okay. early, early podcast. My girlfriend was raging when I told her last night on oh, podcast at nine o'clock tomorrow. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it's jumping a bit, but, please. Aye, uh, that's it. Uh, <laughs> right, there is. Um, so, Paul, you're actually my local MP. Um, and funnily enough, uh, completely coincidental to this, um, I was talking to my, my daughter the other day, and um, she was, you know, just, what are you doing in school? And she goes, oh, I'm writing letters in English, and I was like, okay. And she was like, eh, I'm sure you're writing letters to, and she's like, I'm writing a letter to my local MP, and I don't think she's actually posting your letters, I think you're just being used as the exemplar for, you know, the actual exercise itself, and I was like, so, you know, what are you... What you're writing about now? I'm, I'm, I happen to be also like talking to your local MP in like two days' time, and she was like, oh, "No way." I went, so what are you writing about? And she said, I'm writing about homelessness, and I was like, "Okay, so what it is? Get me, a, get your letter, come back to me with a question, and I'll, you know, open the show asking, you know, your local MP a question at your letter." And I went up to this morning and was like, "What's your question?" And she was like, "I forgot about it." So, <laughs> oh, so missed opportunity and oh, one well. less question on homelessness that you need to face. Oh, um, well. There's no shortage of questions. That's for no, sure. definitely. <laughs> um, so ordinarily, we kind of joke uh, in, a, in a few previous episodes about you know 
you know it's time that you're on a podcast when you know you, you speak about Brexit. I think when we plan to this episode, we're going to be in like peak Brexit territory. So I think we're going to pretty much just kind of open the day and mm-hmm. um, kind of try to get into it a wee bit. Um, I think you know the prorogation that we've faced is pretty much unprecedented in the terms that it's been implemented. Um, and I don't really know how anybody can look at it and not see it as a fairly cynical ploy to kind of essentially bypass the political process. Um, I, I would love, as, as a sitting MP, to hear, you know, kind of where your thoughts are on this, because we live in a representative democracy where our representatives are being actively excluded for the process, and that, for me, is just an absolute scandal. Yeah, I mean... I never planned to be a, an MP, to be perfectly honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, I got elected in June 2017, and the day I was elected, I was 16 to one the bookies. You know, right. so, so it was a bit of a long shot to even end up as an MP, but certainly it's been one hell of a learning curve. Yeah. Uh, Did you make any money off that? Uh, I think my dad <laughs> might have put, <laughs> my dad, put, put a tenner on I don't like tempting fate, so I never right. made it, but the... Um, the thing is, it's been one hell of a learning curve since I got elected mm-hmm. because our political system is just in the most crazy state it's been for probably in generations, actually. Yeah. I mean, at least in our lifetimes. So, I mean, I keep asking some of the older folks, like, is this not, you know, has ever had anything like that uh, before? And everybody's like, no, no, this is not. It was actually with one of the uh, previous MPs for the area, Maria Fife. She mm-hmm. was the MP from the late 80s to the early 2000s in Milton, uh, Milton Mary Hill. Yep. And uh, I was asking her, like, is this anything that they ever had dental even during Thatcher's years and all that? Was anything like this? And she's like, no, this is totally unprecedented. Yeah. You know, and I mean, in that sense, it's interesting, I suppose, to be part of that and see it front in, in the front line of it. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, it's incredibly distressing to see the way things have been ha- handled by yeah. a bunch of what I can only call sociopaths well. who have total contempt. In fact, I wouldn't even say it's an element of contempt or ignorance, but the pain and suffering caused by decision making from a class of people who can't reference or even begin to empathise with the lives of a lot of people and how yeah. they face the challenges of what's been done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never thought I'd find myself agreeing with John Major. Uh, although yeah. I don't remember him really as Prime Minister because I think I was like six when he started um, being Prime well, Minister. Yeah. But I was listening to this speech he made in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about folk saying Brexit is like, well, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we take a hit, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. saying, and he's like, that's an incredibly selfish thing to say because you might think that's worth it, yeah. mm-hmm. but how can you speak for the, the person next yeah. door to you who might not be able to take the hit because mm-hmm. it's the difference between eating or you know having a job or not yeah. mm-hmm. or heating your house you know because you don't know what financial stress they might be under that might be the buckaroo moment for them mm-hmm. yeah. you know just the thing that's the straw that broke the camel's back for them and I think when you put it into that context I, I can't believe I was hearing that from a Tory but you just realise not just how in its own terms destructive this whole thing's been mm-hmm. but also that even when you've got a Tory former Tory Prime Minister calling it out yeah you got to wonder how far politics has shifted to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, of course. And, it's definitely and, uh, been hijacked to an extent. And I think when you look at Major and particularly like the, the expulsion of guys like Ken Clark, um, you know, there's, I think you actually see that there was a time where you might have disagreed ideologically with Tories, but they were, you know, particularly in these two examples, like fiscal conservatives. Like, whereas what we're seeing now is, you know, 
it's kind of disaster it's capitalism. far right. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and there is a difference in the, the 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 mindsets. Like, but at the same time, I when the guys when the grandees of your own party are saying this is wrong, that should be enough pause for thought. But they're just being, yeah. I mean, discarded by their own party. But to an extent, you can also look at it as a class issue mm-hmm. because the people that form the current government are disproportionately from Eton, Oxford, Bullingdon Club. Yeah, people who have never had to live with the consequences of their actions or have even understood what meaning what the meaning is to live hand to mouth mm-hmm. or even having to make ends meet and i suppose to an extent you could say give some credit to somebody like john major because he never went to university grew mm-hmm. up in a working class background he started as a bus conductor right you know so he's kind of one of those working class tories of the old school he has a perspective who kind of <coughs> there, was, there was a tradition of that at one point yeah. but it's just the i think the, the whole political system has moved into this corporate world yeah where it's big money it's um, influenced by a, a sort of institutional capitalism that's totally beyond what we used to ever yeah. see in politics, and that's what's driven this extreme positions. Mm-hmm. I'd argue that you know it was foolish in the extreme for David Cameron, as when he was the prime minister, to agree to the referendum like mm-hmm. that because it's just casino politics. You know, you're just chucking everything on a roulette wheel and hoping yeah. that yeah. the result plays out as mm-hmm. you think it's going to play out. And it didn't backfire massively. You put the whole country on black, it came up red. Yeah. You know, and the problem with the question in itself was difficult because this is what we're grappling with. We've got 52% of the country that said, leave, mm-hmm. leave the EU, right? Cool. Can anyone actually define what that what means? That meant. Mm-hmm. You know, because now we've got Farage and all these kind of folk jumping out saying, oh, it means so-called clean break. Yeah, customs uh, union and every, EA and all these types out. of things. Whereas during the campaign, it was all, oh, don't worry, you know, it'll be like Norway, it'll be like Switzerland, it'll be, we're yep. still in the customs union, we'll still trade and all that. This is just about leaving the, the, the bureaucracy. The, the bureaucracy. Even then you make the argument, you're leaving the, the thing that influences decisions, you're yeah. just going to be then subject to the decisions. Yep. So like no matter which way you cut it, in my view, mm-hmm. you always arrive back at this situation where you're like, well, where we are just now is actually the best deal we've got. But in the same ha- the same point though, um, the reason why it's driven a lot of <coughs> a lot Excuse of uh, concerns and a lot of anguish and a lot of d- uh, disputes is you still get seventeen odd million people that voted leave, and mm. including a big chunk of the you know even in Glasgow North East, yeah. there's about forty odd percent of the folk voted leave, mm-hmm. and I mean the biggest problem with that um, is actually only fifty percent of people turned out in Glasgow North East yeah. to vote, and that's a big problem. Like yeah. only about it's the lowest voting constituency in Britain. Right. Uh, and that's a big challenge. Getting working class people to engage with politics is hard enough. Mm-hmm. And then if they're putting on the televisions and watching all this shambles play out, um, I mean, what, what, how are you selling it How do them? you engage with that? You know, most Aye. people are just like, this is just nipping my head. I don't want to get involved with it. Mm-hmm. But the irony of it is, of course, the working class has the most to lose from not yeah, engaging absolutely. in it. And that's the hardest thing to say to the people who need to to see their representation in the political system the most mm-hmm. need, aren't engaging with yeah, it. Yeah, because it's been uh, made more opaque in their terms than in yeah. any other class or constituency. You're getting, you're getting the Tories doing things very cynically though to to, to suppress working class people voting. Yeah. So like IDs to reg, uh, IDs to go and vote now. Mm-hmm. They're getting you know they can't just stay on the electoral register. You need to re-register yeah. every time. For this is yeah. all like stuff that they've got for yeah. like so the the Republican Party in America. In America yeah, yeah. They, they, they totally suppress the, the vote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's a politician. Like it's got like a sort of inside look. Why do people like Rhys Mogg Johnson? Uh, Farage want Brexit? Is it is it 
something that they're not is there something that they're not telling us or are they really just that they, stupid that <laughs> they have it for different reasons actually in my view Farage is basically a British nationalist yeah um, and I think to an extent for um, uh, Rees Mogg is just a kind of very old-fashioned sort of lives in the 19th century <laughs> sort of um, wants it to be like Victorian times yeah but he's kind of like a what you call a mercantilist mm. so he believes that you know, there should be a, almost a protect, a sort of form of free trade and protectionism. You know, it's a sort of weird, yeah. Um, it's a sort of weird, very old-fashioned view about you yeah. can't have these big cooperative <clears throat> trading blocks. So, like British values for British people, and sort yeah. of, we should be in charge of our own trade, and it shouldn't be anything. Yeah. we should keep all of the money. Yeah, and we'll never die after success. They were in. Yeah, and I just it's a very very old-fashioned and quite simplistic uh, view of the world. Yeah. Um, Particularly when we see the challenge, you know, it's interesting to see the generational shifts because, like, young people recognise that the challenges facing is all are, are global in nature, yeah. and the more interdependence and cooperation is is the better, you know, yeah. rather than it being the other way. Isolationism but, helps uh, nobody. But as for um, as for Johnson, he's a total mercenary and opportunist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he has any real intellectual or ideological. Um, principles that no. underpin his decisions to back, leaving the European Union other than to advance his own his personal own, agenda. So kind of like Trump. Exactly yeah, like it's just basically the latest vehicle to hitch, uh, to hitch his trailer to, yep. to become Prime Minister. Yeah. You know, and he's, I mean, he's been successful, but it's kind of like turned out to be a bit of a poison chalice for him given how disastrous the, the last yeah. few weeks have played out. I, and I, I would like to come out to say that I think it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy because <laughs> his blind ambition and just win that, you know, premiership at all costs, yeah. to then instantly see him lose vote after vote after vote, lose total yeah. control of the house. for the most defeated Prime uh, Minister in office. You know? And you're just like, that's a that's a nice juxtaposition for me that his ambition has been met by just total systemic indifference. The guy can't even walk the streets. I mean, any time, you've yeah. just seen video after video of people going up and challenging and abusing him pretty much. I mean, I, I don't, I use the word abuse lightly yeah. here, but basically going, go away. We don't yeah. want you here. Like people saying, there's, get out of my city, get out of my town. Go to Brussels and negotiate. Crazy. There's been a couple of belters. I love the guy in, in Yorkshire. It was just like, please leave my town. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's just like, he was, but he was like smiling and going, uh, don't worry. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, I won't be here long. That was brutal in a way. It was just because mm -hmm. the guy was very polite about it. Yeah. You know, but I think he's definitely, uh, shook his hand while he said it. Yeah. A bit meme-tastic as well. The, the, um, Yesterday was the the press conference with the the, the president or prime minister of Luxembourg, and mm. he's standing with the empty podium, and people have been like photoshopping and the, the Homer yeah. Simpson disappearing into the back of the hedge, and you're just Aye. like, that is what we're now with a prime minister that we actively think of in yeah. cartoonish terms, and he's been in the job but like three weeks. The tragedy of it all, the tragedy of it all is normal politics has been totally displaced by all of this, Absolutely. and that's the tragedy of it. What I always think about is uh, people go, oh, this factory shut down. And that's X number of jobs lost because mm -hmm. of Brexit or whatever. But I always then think, well, how many companies would have done something but they haven't done it because of the yeah. uncertainty around it? Absolutely. And you're thinking, how many, how do you even begin to earn qualify? How do you even begin to quantify yeah. that? You know, that's massive. Yeah, um, all the lost projects on hold or whatever. Yeah, and nobody's Aye. seen it, nobody's felt the loss of it, so mm -hmm. they didn't pick it up. But there's loads of it that's gone on, you know, and. Um, even in <clears throat> even in, in Glasgow, there's been projects that you know haven't they happened because companies are waiting to see what's going to happen next. They yeah. can't just. And if you're in, in charge of a company, or you know, even to an extent, maybe a government department or whatever it is, and yeah. this uncertainty's out there, like it, 
is prudent of you at this point to yeah. now be cautious? You know what I mean? Like, so it's also things like universal credit, for example, which is rolling out and it's affecting a lot of people in Glasgow North East. In fact, Glasgow North East in my area, there'll be the most number of universal credit claimants of anywhere in Scotland. Right. Um, and the thing is, it's not been given anywhere near the public scrutiny it should have been. If yeah. Brexit wasn't going on, that'd be the number one political issue getting dealt with in Britain Absolutely. right now. And, and the fact that there was so much weight of public opinion behind it, you'd influence the government much mm. more. And that's the thing as well. It's been used as a massive distraction yep. to drive through some pretty horrific um, changes to public policy that are mm -hmm. harming uh, poor people. Yeah. So it's, it's actually divide and rule in a sense. You've got people at each other's throats over Brexit. you working class people, you know, totally, you know, um, trapped in this idea about I'm leaving, I'm remain, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And they're defining themselves in that sense. Yep. Whereas actually what they should be saying is we're all united against forces that are exploiting us. Absolutely. And that's the hardest thing right now to get through to folk. Um, you know, because everybody's like, what's Labour's position on Brexit? What's Labour's position on this? And you're like, we don't get out of bed in the morning. It's, you know, as I say as a Labour person, mm -hmm. we don't get out of bed in the morning going, oh, Brexit. You know, what I'm getting out of bed in the morning to do is how do I help bring more skilled industrial work to my constituency? How do I help get people out of poverty? How do I help improve the living standards of people in my area? Mm -hmm. How do I actually materially and tangibly help people live better lives locally? Mm -hmm. yep. You know, housing, healthcare, um, social security, skilled opportunities for training, and then to get employment that's dignified and, you know, and all <coughs> that kind of thing. Uh, that's what I want to see happen. Yeah, you know, definitely. How do we take, how do we re deal with the fact that Never in our history has a bigger share of our national wealth been taken out in profit by owners of business and exploiters mm -hmm. of you know, capitalists. Mm -hmm. And that never before has a share of the national pie in, in, in wages been smaller. Yeah. Mm. So the amount of people that are actually taking a share out in their wages, the, the people who create the wealth, the workers yeah. producing the, the goods, the services, are not getting any benefits. Are not getting, they're getting an ever smaller share of the the, proce the proceeds of what they're doing. Yeah, you know, and and that's what the Labour Party exists basically. If you want to go back to its funding principles, um, it, it, it exists to organise working class people to capture a bigger share of the national wealth mm -hmm. in their own uh, pockets in the form of wages. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, you do that through a combination of trade union organisation and the workplace to to present influence against the owners mm -hmm. of the businesses and you also do it politically by putting MPs in parliament yep. to pass lo laws and legislation that helps to advance working class interests. You and know? every, every so columnage that is dedicated to re-smog lounging on a parliamentary yeah, bench a is a columnage that we're not talking about yeah. why we're not doing these things yeah, anymore. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, it's frustrating for me in this context because like people are just obsessed with this issue mm -hmm. and I understand why it's important obviously. I've got my views about it obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like, how the hell do we reconcile this? How do we get it dealt with and move on so we can get back to the agenda where it needs to be, which is this rampant exploitation that's going on in society. And a lot of it's to do with Brexit because a lot of it is financial interests that yeah. are driving why Brexit's happening and the way it's happening. Definitely. You know, why can Parliament not agree um, a way forward? Part of the reason is because the Conservative Party are so obsessed with their own self-preservation, or at least were under Theresa May. It's almost been a psychodrama for their party. It has, it? It's an you internal I mean? civil war in the Tory party between British nationalists or English nationalists and the Tory party and um, sort of centrist kind of 
kind of blue liberal democrat kind of yeah. centri- you know types like mm-hmm. Ken Clark and that yep. who were fighting within the Tory party for for a way forward and it's been it's been a total kryptonite for the Tory party for at least 30 years this issue you know since um, the European Union was kind of created initially in in the early 90s and John Major had all the issues with them and and Thatcher to an extent and then and then Cameron but what you're seeing is this isn't this isn't a solution that's involved the country and it was quite interesting to see you know what some of the kind of older elder statesmen if you like and grandees were saying about it they were saying it was crazy to try and just say Theresa May would go and secure the deal and she'd be like kind of Joan of Arc style yeah. like, would just go over <laughs> and champion and, and fight and bring the deal back. What it should have involved was a whole team from every political party yeah. Yeah. and then there should have been a series of votes in Parliament to say, here's all the various ideas yes. of what Brexit could look like. No, There's no whips or anything like that. There's no being forced to vote a certain way. Everybody just vote with what they think is the best idea. We'll get a, we'll a, get consensus, a, a consensus right? in Parliament about what the terms should be. And then, then you trigger the Article 50 clock mm-hmm. for the two-year time period yeah. and then go over and say, right, we've agreed as a country, this is what leave should probably look like. Absolutely. And let's, let's agree it's a, funny a, that a deal. At, at a the time fact when, that that didn't happen is, you know, it's screwed us. Yeah. Right? And when Brexit was being discussed and voted on on a national level, like parliamentary sovereignty was this, you know, almost like kind of half-empty buzzword, really, especially when you see the actions are those um, who have, you know, taken control uh, prior to, you know, recent votes. But, like, parliamentary sovereignty was, like, we will be a sovereign, we will be sovereign, we will be sovereign. And then, as I say, the vote went through, and as a nation, we voted to leave by a fairly narrow margin. But at the same time, that, for me, was the moment where we go, well, if parliament is sovereign, right, parliament should have obviously led that. But, as I say, the Tory party completely cut the knees out for under it. And I think it has been about... It's open scrutiny to an extent because um, when we talk about these corporate and sort of financial interests that are driving a lot of this, um, one of the questions I, I, I watched a documentary on Netflix about sure, I, wasn't it YouTube with my it wasn't it YouTube <laughs> wasn't it that it was uh, the fella who was it was called uh, betting on zero it was a guy who was taking out short <clears> positions <throat> against Herbalife to try and basically destabilize them because he thinks that they're a pyramid scheme and blah blah mm. blah and I was like all right cool and I'd seen the big short and I was like so this is now starting to make sense to me and I asked a question on my social media along the lines of I would be really interested to see who if anyone benefits for short positions against like the pound uh, and then around our sort of parliamentary process and I think last week um, there was a publication for Byline Times that was <coughs> retweeted by um, I can never pronounce her surname but I want to say Caroline Caldwell uh, for The Guardian oh, yeah. like she's an extremely high-end journalist like so for me the, the, the story has a, a veracity but the, they were quoting figures up in the like 8.3 billion range where something like 4.7 billion had came from people who had backed vote leave, with the remaining 3. Point whatever billion coming from people who had directly contributed to the election or the you know the ascension of Boris Johnson to power. And you're like, for me, that is where the scrutiny of Parliament has been <clears throat> sort of hamstrung because I don't, and again, I'm not a financial expert, but like I see a political class or at least members of a political class actively vandalising our economy while simultaneously betting against it for benefit. And I don't get why we kind of treat that like insider trading. Like, So if there was a banker who knew his company was about to collapse and started taking out short positions against his own company, that guy would go to jail. But I don't get where the... Or would he? Well, maybe <laughs> I. He should go to jail. But at the same time, 
we now have Johnsons and Reese Moggs and you know they've moved companies to Dublin so that they still benefit for the EU even when we're outside it and stuff like that and I'm a bit like I don't get how somebody can walk into the chambers vandalise our economy benefit for it and then that's that's all that really gets to happen about it I mean is that something that is am I miles off here in my assessment is that something that has come up in conversations about this type of stuff I don't think you're fairly accurate to be honest with you because um, one of the things that is quite mind-blowing when you get into Parliament is, particularly in the Conservative Party, the extent to which there's massive institutional interests. Right. Um, but... I think Landlords is one of the, the big ones, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the extent to which huge lobbying, not even lobbying, but just institutional money backgrounds, like Rees Mogg is on the same corridor as me in Parliament in right. the offices. And, you know, although he's a, a fair enough polite person to actually... Mm. If you pass in the corridor, they'll say hello to you and stuff. But you recognise that this guy's worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah. You know, I'm. I mean, I don't mean it's, MPs earn a very good salary. Of course. You know, but to put it in context, you earn less than the local GP. You right. Know? The point is that wages for MPs was created to allow working class people to become MPs mm-hmm. because before. Um, it was privately wealthy city bankers and yeah. brokers who would be do it. And actually, Parliament doesn't start until 11 o'clock every day, um, Monday to Thursday, because traditionally it was for the gentlemen to go to the city of London and do their trading in the morning and then come to Parliament in the afternoon. <laughs> you know, and that's, <laughs> that's what it was. That's what it, that. that's what it was like. You know, so the traditions have only changed in the last century because right. the, the enfranchisement of working class people, women, and then the emergence of. Um, you know, a Labour Party in Parliament has mm-hmm. um, changed the dynamics of how it used to work. It was just a gentleman's club before. Yeah. And many of the traditions of that still linger on. But uh, I think you're right about the the influence of moneyed backgrounds, you know, whether it's financing the Leave campaign, it's also maybe there's influence of foreign powers in it as well. I'm convinced that there's geopolitical interference in yeah. it um, by people who want to see the breakup of the European Union for their own mm-hmm. interests, most notably Russia. Um, I think there's also concerns about um, basically disaster capitalists who are taking bets on um, you know mayhem taking place yeah. and then profiting from it. So that and thing t- when you know after 9-11 people were pure oh my god people made money in the stock markets after the back of airline stock crashing and these other things mm. that's disgraceful but then it feels almost like a proactive tactic in the scenario that we're in so it's went in the space of 10-15 years for being this disgusting thing that we should all be outraged by to being mm. literally the driving force behind one of the biggest political changes we've ever seen I agree but yeah, I think yeah. a lot of city institutions have actually lost control of the Tory party under Johnson and yeah. it's been run by a very very extreme fringe uh, and actually I think you're seeing a lot of the institutional money now flowing into the Liberal Democrats believe well, it or not yeah. You know, I was interested to see a lot of time and a lot of coverage. Yeah, it was interesting to see their position shift at their party conference this week. But um, I mean, one of the one of the things that I kind of unwittingly ended up when I first got elected, I remember going along to um, one of the, one of the MPs was like, "Oh, come along to this uh, this evening soiree thing at this guy's house." Right. And I'd just been in a week or something. I was like, "Yeah, I'll come along with you." Course, then. It sounded yeah. like an interesting night. And I uh, went across to the river to Vauxhall, it was just over the road from over the river from Parliament. And it was this it turned out to be like this multi millionaires uh, city brokers townhouse. Oh right, okay. And it had like servants serving like uh, like food in the back garden and like you would believe them out of MPs that were there from yeah. like different political parties. Mm-hmm. And I, but I was just like, Alright, this is how it works then. Aye. You know? 
and I, I was a bit intimidated by it to be honest with you because I'm not one for like you know I, I find it quite embarrassing to ask for like money to like fundraise like yeah. I, I, I raised five grand to fund my election campaign you know and that was mainly trade unions that gave me small and small donors yeah. crowdfunding uh, and working at the back of my car you know so I, I, never, I, never, I never had any concept of how this big yeah. money thing works like I was mm-hmm. looking at Joe Swinson like she'd raised over 100 grand that's an industry you in know, itself isn't it? and it's big checks are like 20 grand a piece you know and it's like I was like whoa this is a different league you know couldn't believe it really mm-hmm. um, but it also made me like quite kind of concerned about how much influence is this buying as well like yeah. you know I don't know but you, you do worry like does it mean that you have to act a certain way you know or yeah you just have to support five grand things? you raised at the back of your car yeah is maybe no buying the same influence for the people that donated to you as the hundred grand to no, you know what, party leader or whatever <laughs> right? but yeah. you know i mean fair enough i mean the, like unite i'm a member of the unite trade union from my days working in the shipyards and they gave me a couple of grand and uh but that's like fine because i you know I, I work on trade union campaigns you Absolutely. know like locally like unite trade union represented the guys at the calorie works for example so mm-hmm. I, you know, I do help out with the trade union cause um, but that is part and parcel of how I want to be as an MP anyway. Yeah. So it's not. It doesn't feel like I'm having to change my behaviour very much, yeah. you know. And it goes totally with the the grain of the purpose of having trade unions yeah, and organising, you know. But that kind of aspect of politics did concern me, and I think there needs to be tighter rules around, you know, these kind of anonymous donors that can act in the background and mm-hmm. potentially influence events, you know, mm-hmm. or at least a better understanding of what they're getting for the money. Definitely, you know. And there needs to be a level of transparency, like. Um, I, I I was I mean I was not surprised by the notion that people were you know vandalising and betting against mm-hmm. our economy. But look I at was what shocked you know. to the extent at which it happened. Yeah, I mean I mean the the the, the, the systematic um, you know abuse of the rules around you know lying uh, on adverts using um, immigration as an issue. Yep. Um, you know lying about the financial aspects of it all. Yep. You know, then the sort of the wall of disinformation that was going on is extraordinary mm-hmm. and frightening, and I think that's the thing that's really concerning: the disorientation. This is it. Uh, that's going on. People don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know what's correct, yeah. what's accurate. As a typically um, kind of you some, know tactic associated with Russia, because yeah. that it's not necessarily that Russia might want to say, for example, destroy the EU or the the UK Union. It's about maintaining the state of flux and disorientation, and I think. When you look at vote leave and you know these other things, some of the allegations made about them and how they've manipulated and potentially weaponized our personal data and stuff like that mm. against us, like this is exactly where I feel we are. Where the forces that are driving this at a higher end are actively trying to not just destabilize us, but just keep us in that flux because if we can't, you know, plant our feet and take a stand on it, then life's a lot easier for them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think like a lot of the stuff. I mean. I mean, personally, like I get right into conspiracy theories a few years ago, and um, got myself out. Thankfully, didn't ever <laughs> really believe a lot of it, but was kind of like, and I, I feel like there's been like a hijacking of that and the sort of YouTube thing where, um, if you were to go to people and say to them like, "Vote we've lied," where they would go, "Well, I've seen a documentary that tells us that it's all true that." You know, Turkey was going to join, and there was going to be twenty five thousand Turks that came here, and blah blah blah, and all this sort of like fear mongering. It's very hard when you get somebody like that to to actually reason with. Yeah, and there's a lot of people like that now as well that yeah. are that only believing the the mainstream media and just being like, oh, that's just all 
disinformation, but this guy's YouTube video that I watched, it's an hour and a half long, it's the ramblings of pretty much somebody that could an probably man, have like <laughs> mental illnesses. I believe that. I, yeah. I believe that over what the, the newspapers are telling Richard me because Dawkins, there's I, I, one example when the light is back in 2000. And, and I mean, one of the ones that screamed out to me was um, Gordon Brown sold all the gold. And this is one that you <laughs> see think you quite a lot. Um, but, it, but when you actually look at the statistics, it... it Pirates, maybe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it's like you know, you're trading commodities for something else, and yeah. they all fluctuate in value from time to time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, 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 so I was going to say, but it's just nonsense. You know what I mean? Because like, it really gold, is just gold nonsense. Was like, gold that. was like one percent of our national wealth. Yeah. Anyway, like, and it was being traded for an exchange for dollars and other commodities, that yeah. then mm-hmm. changed in value as well. So like, it's it's mental that people but still people have this idea it. that the currency is backed by gold. And it hasn't been since the 1970s. Yeah. You know, and it's like the, the, the currency has value because everybody agrees it's got value. Yeah. You know, it, it runs by essentially consent. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that people don't, it blows people's minds when they mm-hmm. realise that. You know, the, the, the paper you've got in your, your wallet doesn't actually have any value. Yeah. Other than the fact that everybody in the country agrees. and internationally agrees that others have value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, That's uh, it. You know but there's no such thing as you can go into a bank and exchange 10 pound for like an ounce of gold or something it used to work like that where there was the, the bank of england could only issue currency to the value of the gold reserves it had mm-hmm. and it doesn't doesn't it doesn't work like that anymore no, i voted remain but yeah. one of the main things that concerns me is that this sort of anti-democratic message that the, the extreme right can use is like a battering ram yeah like if yeah. we don't i mean unfortunately from my perspective we voted to leave and uh, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said earlier on that we should have had like a, a unilateral coming together of all parties and we should have actually planned to leave in a sort of organised fashion, yeah. got a deal that everybody that Parliament voted yeah. for. And I don't know if maybe potentially that Theresa May has been trying to sort of hijack it or like there's Well, been- it's about the fact she, I mean, the biggest mistake she made obviously was having the snap election in 2017 yeah. because she thought Labour's um, trailing way behind in the polls. Um, so I can call an election just now and I can gain even more yeah, seats. reinforce my majority. Yeah, but what she was struggling with, even with her majority, was getting them enough votes for any one version of a deal. For yeah. Them. And then what she thought was, I'll take another bet, have an election, get more MPs in, I'm therefore able to get round all the awkward squad in Parliament, all the, the, the yeah. Boris Johnsons, the Reese Moggs, the people who are extreme Brexiters, mm-hmm. and have enough moderate voices to get a, a deal packaged up and, and sold without right. relying on the Labour Party. And then, and then it backfired massively because not only did she go backwards, um, you know, she then had to rely on the DUP, the DUP you right. know, who are even more extreme, yeah. you know, and didn't even agree to the Good Friday Agreement, you know. Oh. So, like, not only did they not care about those issues that are massive in, that, in Ireland about so the, the backstops and stuff like that is just irrelevant to them. Yeah, so all of that's like become a huge, huge issue about how you square off Brexit because where do you draw the line? Do you draw it down the Irish Sea between the island of Great Britain and Ireland? Yep. Or do you draw it between the Republic and Northern Ireland? Mm. You know, so it's a difficult, difficult situation. And th- there's no real there's no real way of squaring that circle, mm-hmm. to be honest with yeah. you, other than just remaining a member state um, without some degree of difficulty or having a deal that works. But the way that she's agreed the deal means that it's so flawed, um, particularly in the customs union single market issues that right, nobody can sign up to it. so she, it got defeated massively so it, man, it managed to piss off the extreme Brexiters who wanted to leave with no deal yep. and it didn't it, I think it was the it biggest parliamentary defeat in history wasn't it, it was yeah was and like, it, wow. it was defeated you know massively on three occasions and you know uh, 
Oh, sorry, yeah. two occasions. And yeah, absolutely flawed. I'm coming back for it time and time and time yeah, again yeah. as well. It was just maddening. I was like, what are you doing? Like, I know, it was demented and she didn't seem to... She, it was probably the, she was probably the worst Prime Minister to have at that particular point in time because she wasn't capable of lateral thinking she or any sort of creativity. Week. You know, and it, it was actually quite interesting to hear, <coughs> you know, even Tony Blair was saying, you know, you should have just had three votes in Parliament on a series of options, put them forward, then agreed it and then went forward. And then had a, once it had been agreed with the EU, put it back to the people and go, right, there's mm-hmm. the only version I leave that as everybody's agreed yeah. with Parliament. Do you want it or not? Sign it off. Of course. And that gives you the final, you know, it's a bit like putting down an offer on a house and then when you get the, you know, get the home report through and the mortgage deal through, then you get a final chance to sign off or back out, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we need to do on Brexit. Now, the only way, in my view, the only way forward is going to be a public vote yeah. on it. And, you know, the prorogation of Parliament is a ba- basically an anti-democratic exercise by these kind of sociopaths mm-hmm. to try and block parliamentary scrutiny, uh, to, to block any sort of being held to account. I mean, the irony is that if, if the Supreme Court doesn't, of course, I mean, we'll, we'll find out, I suppose, this week. Yeah. Know, but, but maybe by the time the podcast is out, we'll, yeah, we'll know what's happening. Well, <laughs> history's, history's moving so quickly just now, so it's mm-hmm. difficult to even predict a couple of weeks in advance. But, like, um, if the Supreme Court does rule to um, uphold the Court of Sessions decision um, that it's unlawful, then they'll have to recall Parliament, you know. Mm-hmm. So we might be back before the 14th of October. Um, if not, then we're into the 14th. But even then, Boris Johnson's been Prime Minister for almost um, 100 days. It's about 80 odd days. Yep. And he'll only have been subject to parliamentary scrutiny for four of those days. Mm. It's crazy. You so, know? Damaging. so um, damaging. It's crazy, you know. And like I say, within that period, how much has gone on that we haven't been able to hold them to account over, not just on Brexit, but all sorts of other manner of issues. Yeah. And, you know... Domestic abuse for a start. Well, domestic abuse bill, you know, it fell away and, you know, I know Jess Phelps was working hard on that issue. And, you know, it's stuff like the Cali, for example. I, I mean, yep. I was lucky enough to get a... I got Theresa May's Prime Minister, last PMQ, I asked her about the Cali. Mm-hmm. She fobbed me off. The next day, Boris Johnson Security Power had a statement, asked him about the Cali. It was two prime ministers in twenty four hours, you know, about the Cali, and he was just like, "It's a devolved issue," and I'm like, "It's not, it's not devolved. It's mm-hmm. like it's a combination of being devolved of and reserved. A lot of the issues are devolved, yep. But there's certainly stuff he could be doing to help out with the Cali, Absolutely. you know, in Springburn, and it's just like I'm trying to bring it back to relevant issues to help the constituency. I think that's probably a good, you know, point but, to maybe try and move on for Brexit a wee bit because um, one of the things that you know, obviously brought you to my attention as my local MPs and we said as we were talking in the build up this is just like how visible you are like we had representatives of the Ask the 700 campaign on we seen you out campaigning way them on Sucky Hall Street same as ourselves you know there's been other issues like the Cali was one that was particularly close to my heart um, you know I still live in Royston I grew up there my dad grew up there my granddad grew up there they worked at the Cali and the Fords respectively like this was a, a a massive industry for Glasgow. Um, I've got family who, up until the, the recent closure, were also working there, uh, and I'm a bit like, I mean, this was this was a profitable enterprise. That mm. I think one of the guys I spoke to in the build up to the closure had said that they made something like four million pound profit like yeah. the year before, and I'm and I'm a bit like, why, why does a company that makes four million pound profit want to close? Well, a profitable branch it's you mentioned uh, you mentioned the the forge at Parkhead which closed in 1983 mm. um and it's actually a really I'll send you a link to it but there's a really good um 
uh, documentary that was filmed in right. Glasgow around that time, and it features the closure of the forge, uh, and the <clears> parallels <throat> with that actually are striking with right. the Cali. Um, and I, and I call it the branch plant syndrome, mm-hmm. right? So the problem with the Cali and the forge, as it happens back in the day, was um, they weren't the masters of their own destiny as a as a as an industrial facility. <coughs> so the, okay. the the Cali was owned by a German company. Um, called um, Mutares. They'd just been sold from another German company called Norbrems. Right. And they were sold off in a deal that basically involved them getting money, um, millions of pounds from the the predecessor company to shut the Cali down. Oh, right. Um, And they basically were paid to do the dirty work for them. Um, The main centre of, uh, the main centre of the headquarters of the company in Britain was in Milton Keynes. It's the main railway works Mm -hmm. for the company. Um, it's maybe two or three times bigger than the Cali. Right. Um, but over the years, more and more stuff was just moved down to Milton Keynes. The okay. wheel, there's a wheel shop in Springburn that used to turn and maintain all the the wheels for all mm-hmm. the trains in Scotland. Um, it could do any type of wheel in, in any real any railway rolling stock in Britain. Mm-hmm. It's the only place in, in the UK you could do it. That was shut down a couple of years ago. There's been a chip chip away yeah. at the Cali over a few it's years. Because I, I think um, in, in a tweet to yourself at the time, I did. Kind of discre- or it was to somebody who'd responded to one of yours, like one of the guys had tried to frame it in a kind of SNP bad kind of way. And I was like, mate, I mean, like the death, the Cali had been dying at a death of a thousand paper cuts for mm. 10, 50. I mean, when my dad was there 25 year, you know, there wasn't a year went by where it wasn't talking about, oh, well, this is the year we're gone. And you know, it's the cat with nine lives, you know, it's but, what they, my, yeah. But the, the thing about the Cali was, <clears> you know, I was born in 1989, but the, the year I was born, the Cali covered everything where the current Tesco's is, the Costco is, yep. the Royal Mail Depot. You know, it was a massive, massive site. It employed maybe two, 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. And and it was a bit like the Parkhead Forge at that time as well. In 1983, when it was shut, there were only 400 guys left there. Yeah. When the Cali closed uh, this year, a couple of months ago, 200 folk were working there. Yeah. You know, it's way, way down on what it was in its mm-hmm. heyday. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the tragedy of it. You know, we were just trying to keep the flame alive for the last bit of it. Yeah. And to give it a footprint to grow again. Um, but the, the, you're right, it was a profitable site. It could have continued to work successfully. A lot of the train maintenance mm-hmm. organisations in Scotland are dumbfounded about why it's shut down. But we've actually just discovered with the trade union in the last uh, couple of weeks that the ScotRail train has been maintained in a depot in Southampton just now. Uh, so we're, we're trying to actually acquire evidence about what's going on there. Because mm. why are they sending ScotRail trains to the south of England yeah, to get maintained? Yeah, it could could get done in the Cali easily. Yeah. Um we've also heard that there's a risk of potential casualization going on at the Cali. So we've heard rumours that basically the company that, that's leased the site is owned by a company called Hansteens, mm-hmm. which is a company that just owns all sorts of industrial buildings all over Britain. It's got mm-hmm. a massive portfolio. They leased the site to the company that is currently was operating there called mm-hmm. Gemini Rail. Yep. A subsidiary of Mataris which had been sold from Nor Brems. So, so it's, a total, dolls, it's it? a total shell game. It's not just uh, a simple. Yeah, sort of it's like, all. It's again. It's a. It's a follow the thread. Of, you know, various companies that are just mm-hmm. after shafting the workforce. Um, the good thing about that workforce was it was ninety five percent trade union represented, yeah. so they were able to fight back, and they were able to get robust representation, and it wasn't they weren't going to go down without a fight. No. Mm-hmm. But we've heard that now they've got shot of the permanent workforce. Um, they're planning basically to bring in contractors and agency staff to do two three month temporary projects on the site mm. and just there'll be start up agency staff brought in and in, in, in the zero hours contracts whatever do a, a specific train project and then shut it down again 
and that's how they're going to plan to, to move forward. So we are preparing to um, mobilise against that yeah. agenda. So, you know, there's going to be a public meeting in Springburn in the next um, couple of weeks. Right. Um, it's a Morning Star event that they're organising up in Bulgary Hill Community Centre. Right. Um, and I'll just, I'll just find the information about it. But it'd be good if people <coughs> if they wanted to come along and find out more about the story of the Cali. Um, I can find... Uh, I can certainly... Absolutely. Uh, find out some more information about that. Um, sure. So that's going to be the fight for the Cali. Les Ashton, the convener... Um, who's at the works is speaking yep. at it Pat McElvoe from United Trade Union and Mick Hogg from the RMT Union that'll be at 7 o'clock on Tuesday the 1st of October right. at the community centre on uh, Bulgary Hill Road so if anybody wants to come along and hear more Absolutely. about it we'll you know, get that shared along the way as well you know, but the, the mm-hmm. thing is we need to get the community engaged in this issue yeah. because if there is a risk of casualisation we need to resist it but the campaign to reopen the site continues mm-hmm. the thing is it was nationalised from 1948 to 1995 as part of the part of the British Rail yeah. our argument is if the Scottish government and, and as Labour does wants to create a publicly owned railway, we're mm-hmm. totally up for that. You know, we want to mm-hmm. cooperate with the SNP on this. There's always this myth that we're always fighting against each other. Mm-hmm. And we're just saying, look, we agree with this idea. We're, what we're dumbfounded by is if you want to do it, we're better to start rebuilding a public railway in Scotland than to start with the Cali. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it into public control. Mm-hmm. Just say this is the depot where all this, the maintenance for the Scottish trains gets taking place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, let's create a new footprint, let's build a new company up. And even I, I had this idea, it was a bit, I mean, admittedly, I'm a bit of a heritage nerd. <coughs> uh, you know, I do this, like, I do tours of Springburn. I've grown up in Springburn, you know, fascinated by the history of the old, of it. Um, the greenhouse? The Winter the, Gardens, the winter yeah. Garden I've been working well. to try and raise the funds to restore it in the last few years. You know, it's a hard slog, but, you know, chipping away at that as well. Uh, but, like, I had this idea, there's an old steam engine that was built in Springburn. It's up mm-hmm. at Summer League and Coat Bridge. And uh, uh, the yeah, idea of bringing that back down to the Cali. I used to love Summerlee. It's fantastic, uh, yeah. Uh, I went up recently, obviously, to see the steam engine, but this massive South African steam engine. Uh, it was built in the Hyde, uh, Flemington Street at the Hyde Park Works. Mm. I thought, bring it back to the Cali, pay the guys to refurbish it into a working steam engine, because the, the reason why it was brought back from South Africa in the first place to Scotland in the 80s was actually to refurbish it and run it on the Heritage Railway at Bowness. Yeah. It'd be the only example of like a engine built in Glasgow to send to be sent abroad. Mm-hmm. What running there's, there's absolutely a market for that. People take these, oh, yeah. you know, quote unquote historical train journeys yeah. to Inverness and you know exactly. all across the UK. But I mean, it was just an idea. It's like that would keep the guys going for a year, maybe to refurbish this engine. It'd be an amazing story about the heritage of Springburn. What's not yeah. to like about it? Surely yeah. government could just write a check now. Let's do it. It wouldn't involve state aid rules, and the government just pushed back all the time. It's like, oh, it would involve state aid rules. I'm like. Your arse, it wouldn't involve state aid mm. rules. I've checked this out. You can do it because the whole point of the project is to be done in Springburn because it's part of the heritage of the area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they've just not got it. They can't seem to get their head around what I was trying to suggest. Mm-hmm. It's been like ha- banging your head up a brick wall with them. Mm-hmm. Not only on the nationalisation, all they want to do is try and advertise the site to get another company to come in and take it over. They're not prepared to actually get stuck in and do it personally. Yeah. And it's so effects. frustrating, you know. And I was hearing that, you know, when they intervened at Ferguson's down in Port Glasgow, the, the minister was saying, oh, I'll probably get some kid back for this, but frankly, I need the ferries done, I don't need the trains. Okay. You know, that was pissing me off. And I think it's important people know that. Been, that's what's been said behind closed doors, you know. Mm-hmm. It's shocking. And my job as an MP really is to basically just kick up about that because there's too many folk that have just sat back and let it happen. And my, yeah. view, and my biggest frustration growing up was seeing the area declining, mm-hmm. you know, or seeing the area, well, maybe not decline, it had declined by the time I was born pretty much, but like, 
just seeing an area that you knew had been much more prosperous yeah. and, and much more uh you know dynamic and, and and thriving in the in the previous decades yeah you know an area that had 80 percent of its buildings knocked down that had seen all its major industries closed down that had the stuff knocked out of it really the population's yeah. like half of what it was in 1950 you know so my idea was like now i've got a chance to be as an mp advocating to rebuild the area yeah. and, mm-hmm. and it's like i'm not going to tolerate a step backwards like the cali shutting down mm-hmm. so we're going to absolutely fight to, to try and save it and I'll tell you what, we're not just going to now say, oh, it's shut, so we're going to let it go. No. We're saying there's definitely going to be a railway engineering company going in there at some yeah, point. We're going to be fighting there to keep it back up, get it back up and running, because mm-hmm. it's not going to be another Tesco's, you know. So, uh, and yeah. I don't mean to decry, no, you know, no, I work in a supermarket, but right. we need to have industrial skills employment, you know. There needs to be more than just sort of low-paid jobs yeah. and, and communities. And, and I was standing actually in the car park of the Tesco's, and I was kind of looking at the Cali, and then I was kind of looking over at Tesco's, and I was thinking... That's basically the last 40 years of this country's economy in a nutshell. Defined. <laughs> you know, like the closure of skilled industry, apprentices, unionised jobs, uh, and it's replacement by casualised labour, lower wage labour, unskilled labour. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, that's where the front line of this fight really is. Yeah. I talk about Brexit, a lot of people are voting leave. And also, I'd argue a lot of people are voting for independence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of a lot of those issues, the economic disenfranchisement, they definitely. Feel. And in my view, is is maybe misdiagnosed or mis, uh, mistargeted, yeah. in my opinion. But the real fight is against the economic forces that are forcing Absolutely. it. Absolutely, you know. My dad's the poster child for it when it comes to the Cali because he was there twenty five here, um, took his kind of early retirement uh, in his mid fifties. And his first job after sort of semi-retirement for the Cali was at Tesco. Right. So I think there was a initiative to reposition guys who had recently left the Cali with Tesco's. My dad was there, cut the ribbon on right. the Tesco building as, you know, this sort of long-term servant of the Cali. Aye. And the minute they were done with him, they fucked him off onto the night shift for two years. Horrendous. And he never seen the light of day for the best part of, you know, two years, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, so it's that way that they went for being, oh, uh, this is, you know, a link to our heritage and this is, you know, this is where the St. Rock sites come from. Yeah. And then the minute the cameras were gone, they were all right, night shift, what you see later. You know what I mean? Like, so it's I, just a kind of an, an industrial fetish almost that, yeah. you know, we're playing lip service to um, the heritage and the dignity of our community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of offensive in a way, you know, to see that shattering a working class dignity and when you see that um you know it was interesting in that documentary i mentioned about the 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 ford shutting down mm-hmm. one of the guys was talking about the political uh the political organization of a community like springburn and bridgeton yep uh he was talking about these working class districts in glasgow you'd have massive political engagement you'd have loads of political halls around yep. uh, springburn you'd have labor party halls you'd have independent labor party halls communist party uh, socialist party trade union lodges and all the rest of it. And uh, all of that kind of hotbed of so-called Red Clyde side organisation has been fractured, partly because of the deindustrialization, but also because physically people are moved out of the community mm-hmm. and they were moved into the they were moved into what were, were called dormitory suburbs. And one of the points that was made in this documentary was what's the literal sense of dormitory, a place to sleep. Yeah. You know, so we're kind of saying as Glaswegians slept the fight went out of them. Yeah. The mm-hmm. fight to actually win for their communities in terms of dignity, wages and industrial dignity, 
you know, progress. Uh, it was uh, beaten out as to a sense. Yeah, but it was a pacification. You know, it was almost more subtle than that. You know, it was mm-hmm. almost like we'll give you a, a house with a toilet in it, indoor toilet. Mm-hmm. But you know, what else is? It was seen as progress. But what, it yeah, like, but what's been taken away? You know, mm-hmm. do you I think mean, that, uh, that reindustrialization's a solution? Um, well, I believe that the biggest challenge facing us right now is the environment uh, and how we address the challenges of our climate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think we're on the cusp of a new industrial revolution. Glasgow became the hotbed of a, an industrial revolution when it was the steam age. Mm-hmm. And my view is, if we get it right, uh, Glasgow should be at the forefront of a new industrial revolution about okay. new technologies to do with the environment. And this idea, you know, people go, oh, green, the green agenda, it's all to do with just, you know, eating uh, vegan uh, yeah. food. and all No this, using plastic you know, straws. And, all, and it's all kind of tokenistic stuff, that kind of thing. And then it's almost like it's an inconvenience. Yeah. You know, my view is, actually, the opportunity is to massively re-industrialise this country by being at the forefront of developing the new technologies. Mm-hmm. So whether it is, you know, high-speed, um, environmental efficient trains, public transport yep. systems heating systems, uh, energy generating systems, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, we need to have factories and skilled employees yeah. uh, working in these in these uh, industries that could grow in the future. Absolutely. We also create the finance to allow these things to grow. Definitely. That's what Glasgow was built on. It was built on a bunch of guys that were essentially industrial geniuses who came up with the, how to create the steam engine and make it more efficient. And a bunch of guys that thought, why don't we stick it in some ships? Why don't we stick it in some steam and en- in- trains? And it all just exploded. It was massive. And <coughs> it was a combination of you know, entrepreneurialism, engineering know-how, and, you know, a ready-made pool of labour coming in from Ireland, from the famine, and from the highlands, from mm-hmm. the clearances. And that's how Glasgow basically kind of was this powder keg that basically exploded into a massive industrial city. It was yeah. the biggest in Europe, you know. And it was, it's an amazing story, really. But, you know, the flip side of that is the massive de- decline of the city yeah. um, industrially in the last 45 to 50 years is something we've not really... Um, moved on from yeah. but not only that that the people who could get out of these communities have left Yeah. and what it means is this: the communities that are left behind are disproportionately poorer and sicker uh, and le- live less long yeah. than, the, than, than an average yeah, some of the statistics you know, are horrific you need some know, of the skills as well we don't have people we don't yeah. have like I mean if, if I had a, if I had a been born 50 years before 1983 I would have probably worked in I'd have been a skilled worker yeah whereas now like I'm pretty much a salesman yeah you know what I mean and that's yeah. well I mean the, the economy's changed and you know people the, the days of like going into a job from school and working until you retired in the same place is long gone yeah. you know more or less and I don't know if that's entirely desirable you know because yeah. it's basically like a kind of you know a drone basically you know yeah, but, a life sentence all the but, time but and it, you know Jimmy Reed said something that was quite powerful when it, uh, it was back in the 90s he was he was standing in a field between Mogai and Drumchapel and he was the camera kind of panned over when he was talking and he was just saying look the average life expectancy over in Drumchapel is like 60 odds and Mogai is 70 odds the average life sentence Aye. for murder in Scotland is 10 to 15 years He's like, literally by being born and living in that community and not that community, you're getting a life sentence. You know, and then when yeah. you put it like that, it's, you know, you cross the coast and lights from Bishop Briggs to Springburn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a significant change in the statistically in the life expectancy. Ah, yeah, forgot, that's yeah. because everybody who was upwardly mobile in Springburn moved to Bishop Briggs. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like they called it Spam Valley for a reason. Right. You know, but I just mean, like, we need to address the, the huge physical inequalities in the city yeah. uh, longer term. You know, and one of the things that you know, I've talked to the local housing association, and the way they put it, there are people like, well, "How do we create more social housing? How do we create X and out type of housing, better housing in the community?" And one of the things they were saying to me, which I didn't really fully appreciate before, was like, "Well, think about it, son. You know, you get a couple that are in a 
you know, renting a, a house, a mm-hmm. council house in, in Springburn. They have, uh, you know, a kid that goes on to college, goes to become a policeman, say, uh, goes out with a lassie that's uh, a nurse. They both get together, save up some money, they look to buy a house. They've got enough to buy it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the reality is they, there's not many opportunities to buy a house in somewhere like Springburn. So what they're going to do is go up to Rob Royston. They're going to go up to Bishop Briggs and buy a house. Yeah. And then they've 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 gained they've gained in skills. They've got good quality jobs. They've improved. Mm-hmm. But are they living in the community? They've they just moved on to somewhere else. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then the, the actual community doesn't benefit from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of blew my mind a bit when I was thinking. Like about the local equivalent of brain drain. Exactly. And, and and it's that that's the kind of things we need to address as well. We need to Springburn back in the day had. The owner of the locomotive industry living next to Springburn Park. All the management of the industry lived in Springburn. Mm-hmm. The workers lived in Springburn. That's why things like the Winter Gardens were built, the libraries yeah. were built, because the, the, the wealthy people lived there as well, yeah. and they wanted everybody to share in the proceeds. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily agree with exploitative capitalism and paternalism like that, but there was a reality there where people were all yeah. bought into the community. It was well-intentioned a lot of the time. You, know I mean? you need to uh, bridge the gap between... Yeah, this guy and this guy. Yeah, really the people like who the own the wealth and the one at the top. It's yeah. just the gap's far too big, and the guy at the top can afford to live in Bell's Den. Yeah, he doesn't the top one percent of this country's uh, people, you know, they own more wealth than the bottom fifty percent combined. You know, it's that, that and gap the, stops us from being able to like relate to each other. And as we were yeah, talking at the start of the show, was like these people who are represented as the you know the gap between us and them is so big that. We can't realistically expect them to represent us accurately because they don't come from where we come totally. from. They don't experience what we experience. But as I said, you know what you're proposing there is, is probably quite a reasonable argument, uh, an alternative to it. Like I'm wary of the fact that we're we're, we're getting pretty sort of tight on time. Uh, so I want to just start to um, you know bring the the, the the wrap up process into play. Time flies. Um, <laughs> I just say it every time, man. So one of the things that I want to address, having a Labour MP here. It's too good an opportunity to know. I'm going to preface it by saying I'm politically engaged because I love the politics of the Labour movement. Like, Mm. um, up until very recently, I've always considered myself, you know, Labour minded. Um, Obviously, Scottish independence has skewed some of that, but I still like to look at things on a case by case basis. And we've discussed this a number of times on the show in the past. Like, your record with guys like the 700, the Cali, and whatnot are all stuff that policy-wise I 100% agree with and I can see beyond the fact that you know I didn't vote for you unfortunately the last time out um, because I was very much in the mindset of SNP will provide me with independence yeah but looking at your record and your activity and your visibility even things like uh-huh. you know talking in the houses of parliament about Nakadar and stuff like that, which is <laughs> like the best Indian takeaway ever, it is very good way. Johnny Johnny we, and Tony Ginda do a good job we love it in the, we love it in the office is that the one across the road it's doing it at Edgewick Street oh right uh, oh right I uh, used but, to be uh, next day it was, a, it was a surreal uh, I entered them into this competition <laughs> in parliament uh, run by Keith Vaz right and it's the Tiffin Cup it's called and it's for the best curry house in Britain uh, and um, it was just a bizarre scene, like to see the guys down in the parliament cooking up a, a, a butter chicken masala oh, thing. Stuff's dynamic. And, uh, but it was like Ainsley Harriet was like <laughs> in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like these guys for these like, Ainsley Harriet hanging out in parliament. So I mean, like surreal. looking at your record, I'm, I, and I'm going to yeah. go there and say, like, I'm going to vote for you in the next election comes in because I think as a representative for my area, you've been absolutely dynamite. You know what I mean? Like, but there is this tension that, you know, has arrived because people like myself, we have grown up on the Labour Party, we love it. And in 2014, we felt betrayed by it when yeah. they stood next to Tories uh, to tell us what was best for us. 
And I think there's been a pretty sizable hangover after the back of that um, yeah. for the Labour Party, particularly in Scotland. And, and I just wonder sometimes, like, would all your life no be easier if the Labour Party in Scotland just took a neutral stance on independence? Just when, when there is an independence referendum, we will come with our proposals, we will come with, you know, what we think and what we want to happen. Mm. But see, between now and then, when I'm running your constituency, when I'm trying to provide you with jobs, when I'm trying to provide you with services, when I'm trying to make sure that you get the most out of your areas possible, I'm just not getting into that debate. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the the way that the referendum ran in, in 2014 was massively um, counterproductive, in my view, mm-hmm. because it chased after um, a section of the population that they thought were susceptible to, you know, being doubtful about things. Yeah. And and then that meant the narrative was very much on the negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I would talk up opportunity because then people want to have a, you know, to have hope. Yep. Uh, you know, and the problem again, as I said, was at the start with a Brexit is like, I don't necessarily agree with these binary situations where it's like, throw the lever to yes or throw the lever to no. Yeah. I actually think, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not, a Europhile by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. I believe that we should be in the European Union, mm-hmm. but it's not meaning I'm signed up to think it's a fantastic yeah, structure. Those institution. Flaws, those flaws you know, what they did to Greece, you know, yeah. I'm very much of the view that we need to fight with left wing and socialist allies across Europe to reform the institutions against capitalism. Yep. You know, and make it a social Europe. But the same token, I've got a similar almost a, a consistent view of the U, how the UK could work. Mm-hmm. Um that, you know, when I go to Liverpool, um you know, it's like it just feels like Glasgow, doesn't? It? I don't, it doesn't. I don't go there and think it's an alien place to yeah. be. You know, I'm just like we should work. Working class people need to work together to fight back against the likes of Boris Johnson, the Tories. The opportunity to transform the country lies in having a Labour government and uh, in, in, uh, the Parliament uh, to form a government that can transform lives across mm-hmm. the UK for working people. But I think the problem with the UK is it's structurally flawed at the moment. Yeah, it's massively over centralised. It's not got a codified constitution. There's still a democratic deficit yeah. that exists, um, and I think you're right. I've, you know, I'm quite happy with what John McDonnell said. I don't know if you, you know, it was a big stush over it and a big yeah. dispute. And he was saying, look, if a mandate is clear and unequivocal from a Scottish Parliament election mm-hmm. that, that another referendum on this question wants wants to be brought forward by the people then it's not the Labour Party's job to block that. It's yeah. the Labour Party's job to, to sort of agree that there's a mandate there. You know, and I'm really pleased with that because I think that's only democracy. You yeah. know? Uh, however, um, my difficulty with it is I think we need to have a much more open conversation about the opportunities that we could look at. You know, my view is I've always I've always believed that since I was like 14 years old that, that, that a federal UK is the way to go. Okay. Um and I was kind of frustrated by a 2014 referendum because you're basically forced to sort of round up or down from yes to no, yeah. depending on where you felt your views were best aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, some people admittedly are just like, Scotland's a country, a country should be independent, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how it should be. You know, fair enough. It's, an, it's a respectable ideological view. Mm-hmm. It's just not an analysis that I tend to share because I'm thinking about things through a lens of how do class dynamics work, how does capitalism yeah function in the international system, how do you best fight against that? You know, I mean, it's a whole podcast in itself, really, but, yeah. but to try and keep it to, to time. Um, basically, what I'm saying is, I don't think that it's helpful to necessarily have a binary way forward on that any referendum in the future. I think there ought to be a, no, a number of maybe options where people will say, look, 
we've got this idea of what independence could look like. It could mm-hmm. be with our own currency, with being part of the EU. It could be blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then I think there should be an option where it's, um, you know, say in a UK-wide level, we need, we've got this federal constitution idea where English politics gets kicked out of Westminster mm-hmm. and the, the Westminster becomes like a, a balanced federal parliament mm-hmm. where each region and nation gets its own equal say in it. Mm-hmm. The House of Lords is removed and it's replaced with a Senate that's elected with proportional representation that in England, basically, you break the, the, the England, which is a huge you know state of like or a huge uh, nation of 50 million odd people yeah um down into units of about 10 5 to 10 million and they have their own parliament or assembly yeah. in those areas like yorkshire you know the uh, west country mm-hmm. whatever it might be you know uh and then they have powers equivalent to Holyrood, restore devolution <laughs> to northern ireland uh you know beef up the powers of the london assembly mm-hmm. um the Welsh Assembly to the equivalent to Holyrood, and then you have a codified constitution which spells out completely the rules of engagement between each yeah. section of the country and how they interface with each other, how the balances work, and how that all can hang together. Mm-hmm. And that could be an op- option for people to yeah. vote for. Yeah. My concern there is that, like, if and when an independent Scotland becomes a thing, my, my biggest fear, if we're going to talk about that sort of notion of fear, is that there won't be. A, a credible or functional Labour Party in Scotland when the time mm-hmm. comes, and like, I think guys, particularly like yourself, you 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 do tend to sidestep a lot of the SNP bad stuff, largely speaking, quite well, and stick I do to my your, best. Sometimes, you, I, sometimes, I, uh, I, sometimes I get wound up. Yeah, but, uh, sometimes uh, but, it's but, easy um, to get wound up though in this game. But like, yeah. <laughs> like what has turned me off most about the Labour Party in Scotland is taking legitimate criticism of the Scottish government on policy but then also pouring a big dose of SNP bad on the tapet. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm smart enough to get that if hospitals are failing, just dig them out about that. If schools are failing, there's your criticism. It doesn't all have to be related to this wider independence referendum that may or may not happen down the line. And yeah. I think it kind of draws away from it. And I think when what I've liked most about how you've conducted yourself or how I've largely seen you conduct yourself is that you do stick to policy, you do go on the streets and talk to people about the issues. You do represent at a really sort of good percentage of the time at um, you know Parliament and stuff like that. And I'm like, free the the, the chatter, what may or may not come down the line. Like, these are extremely effective, and I think that's what I want to see Mary for the Labour Party. I think if he's going to get back to where he's were in Scotland, it needs to be for me. He's going right. Well, look, the independence debate will happen when it happens, but right now. Well, schools are this, or hospitals are that, or transport system is here, whatever it is, and just actually like get after that neutrally the stance of one or the other. And I don't say a lot, I, I, you, you're there, but it's even now, the, the newer guys that are standing up for upcoming elections and councils and that, there, it's, uh, do they give you like a textbook about how to relate everything to why it's the SNP's fault or like what? You know, I, I think you're, you know, you've got a fair point there. Um, in my view, I mean, I've said this a few times. Um, we should stop defining ourselves in terms of our political opponents. Yeah, um, we've got a really, in my view, the Labour Party has got an exciting plan and an exciting vision for how this country could be improved. I'd rather we just talked right. about that. Uh, you know, and fair enough, we can say about the Cali. You know, say look, I want to see this happen with the Cali. Would you please get behind this idea to try and save it? Yep. I'm not going to sit there and go, you know, you're inherently bad or flawed. 
I'm just trying to say you're, you know, I'm dismayed, I'm frustrated that you're not getting behind this idea from yeah. Cali, you know. It's just as one example. As an example. You know, drug deaths is another one where, you know, there's a huge problem with drug related deaths. Yeah, the, the prominence of these are getting bigger and, and bigger. You know, and it's like, I'm, I'm fine with like, you know, criticising the Tories, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I'm no stranger to doing that, you know, tore into them in Westminster about why aren't you reforming the drug laws that are antiquated, the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, it's not worth the paper it's written on, it's a total, no, it's totally, totally obsolete now, you know, and, uh, you know, but in the same token, I'll then say the thing that, you don't want to talk about as uh, SNP MPs as the fact that drug addiction services in Glasgow have been cut. Yeah. You know, so I'll talk about that as well. Of course. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think that's an issue. You know. Definitely is. Uh, it's, it's not me having a go at the SNP, you know, just for the sake of it. I'm saying, I'm coming at it with how do we help fix the problem? Mm -hmm. You know, I've spoke to folk who are, you know, at the front line of the drugs issues in, in the constituency. They're coming back telling me these things. Mm -hmm. I need to have that conversation. I need to raise that issue. Why was the naloxone program for heroin addiction um, pushed out of central funding? Why has it been pushed into health boards when, when it's a postcode lottery now? Yeah. You know, these are issues. Why can't we have a drug testing service like they have in Wales um, so that people taking, you know, uh, Valium or, or Ecstasy, whatever it might be, um, various benzos and so on, can get mm -hmm. it tested to make sure it's okay before yeah. they take it? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, we need to, there's a lot of stuff that could be innovated on now, mm -hmm. you know, rather than just try to turn it into a, a sort of, you know, uh, if only we could get control of this, we could do something. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, if you were genuinely straining at the leash, whatever from we've got now. You could find a way. Then you could, you know, Definitely. you could do something mm -hmm. to make it. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean they get off the hook. We're saying the laws need to change about the drug classifications. I'm saying, yes, absolutely. Totally up for that. But also work around it to the best of your ability. Mind, we need a mind map here of all the things that need fixed. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just about what's convenient for your agenda, if you know what I mean. Ah, oh, that's great. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm coming at. I, I want to just do what I can to try and improve the situation. Yeah. You know, because I'm I not think really... that's something uh, that we need more of. I think that's where the strength representatives is. Yeah. Because that's, that's a lot of like what's missing is that... Like exactly what you're saying. I get frustrated. I'm with Matt. I, vote, I, I'm, I come from a family of traditional Labour voters that switch to SNP during yeah. the independence referendum. And something that, that's frustrated me about SNP and Labour is is that almost all, all the time it's like an, it seems <coughs> like an agenda is getting played that the SNP are maybe not tackling things so that they can say, well, that's Westminster's problem. And it's Aye. like, well, do you know what? It's not. It's our problem. It's not their... I mean, they might have the power to do something about it, but how about we look at other ways to Aye. try and combat these things well, instead of letting things get so bad that you can then go... Aye. We should be independent of that down there. Aye. It's like it's getting to the point now where it's like, can we not just? Ah, we're gambling. Aye. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think you know the Parliament was set up in Holyrood. The idea was it was born out of Thatcherism. <coughs> you know, it was born out of the frustration of the Thatcher years, if you like, about never again will you know a Thatcherite government be able to just ride roughshod over people. And the idea of the Parliament was, I suppose, to act as a sort of force field yeah. to an extent against a buffer. that. You know, and um, I don't feel that it's been fully deployed, if you know what I mean. And that might be for certain certain cynical reasons because it suits, you know, yeah. to just get it smashed and then they can go off only we had the full thing. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I, I don't want to be like, you know, totally cynical about that, but I definitely think it's important to call those issues out of when course. I see them, you know, Absolutely. on the ground. And I'm, I'm just doing what I can, you know, as best I can to try and improve the area. And, you know, you're right about, you know, there's a lot of Labour voters who voted yes. Constituency I represent voted, I think, 57% yes. 
Um, that's why the Labour share of the vote halved, you know, from 2010 to 2015. Mm-hmm. And then it climbed back up again because people saw in 2017, oh, we've got a genuine socialist Labour Party mm-hmm. under Jeremy Corbyn, who's proposing pretty radical shake-up of what could happen. I fancy putting my tick on that box this yeah. time to see how it goes. And uh, it was enough to, to win by 200 votes, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I think, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to see this government take shape. We can beat Boris Johnson, kick him out, you know, and, and actually have yeah. a socialist Labour government. If we can't beat this guy, then I think, you know, I think we'll need to pack up and go home. Well, that's, my, that, that, that's, <laughs> my, that's my view. I, you know, I, I just think this is going to be the biggest... I don't know when an election might come. It's difficult to time it exactly, yeah. but it's going to be one hell of a fight, and it's a fight for a generation. Absolutely. You know, you know, this is like we need to get these people out. If they win, you know, we're just like we're, Britain we're, becomes we're, a pound shop. Yeah, we're, we're just we're just I mean? totally like, going to be over a barrel, man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's difficult to describe how horrific. You know, I them. I said uh, it in the mandate would be two years ago and four years ago. It feels like, but twenty twenty in America and the next general election here are vital. They're yeah. so vital. We're we're, get, we're just at this sort of breaking point. It's I a feel. culture war, you know. Yeah, it feels absolutely. like a culture war. You know, this is like, like it's like the end of an Avengers movie. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it needs it's, to be. I think uh, that's the way that it needs to be. No, even sold because yeah. it doesn't need to be sold. That people need to know that. I, yeah, think, no. that I think that's that's why it's been quite powerful to see like SNP Labour, even you know Liberal Democrats. Um, though it's a bit dodgy how they're taking all these Tories in but, yeah. but you know but at least there's been a bit of coordination and a, and a pretty decent cooperation in yep. the last few weeks against to- the, the, Boris Johnson exceeds control of the it's been one of the actual you know uh, saving graces of the last couple of weeks to be honest but to see people actually cooperating yeah. in aid of the greater good for what feels like the first time uh, in a while to secure that win about making leaving with no deal on the 31st illegal um, is, is powerful you know because it yeah. really puts Boris Johnson in a corner now and that's why he's like a cornered animal right now, you know, it's mm-hmm, quite difficult yeah. to see how he gets out of this situation. So the next few weeks are certainly going to be pretty stressful and, and interesting. Stressful for me probably more than most people, but... Well, uh, maybe we can get you back in sometime and, and you can tell us how that panned out because I'm, I'm wary of the fact that you are, time, you are due to be elsewhere and we're, and we're kind of probably no over a wee bit here and don't mind, you know, stoning your toes too much about it. But oh, not to worry. I really, like, appreciate you coming in. It's been great to speak to you. Like, as I say, I've been hugely impressed by the work in my area that you've done sure. and, you know, on an issue by issue basis, I'll definitely be out there when the election comes back in you, man. Somebody's vigorously rattling my door, so I better go and get it. But I thanks as well, man. It's been great talking to you. It's been really interesting as well. Cheers, man.